So welcome to Bethany United Methodist Church. If you're just now joining us, we're glad you've chosen to worship with us this morning. Um, if you have questions or want more information, as uh, Sherry said at the beginning of the service, you can go to the website or uh, talk to one of the hosts online if you have the live chat option going on the side of your screen. Uh, but we're glad you've chosen to worship with us this morning. We're starting a new series about being unafraid, uh, living with faith in the midst of these times. And so uh, this morning we're going to be talking about facing our fears with faith. And I'm going to start off with just a little uh, kind of quick primer. I, all the stuff I'm going to show you right now is stuff you can find on the internet. So, uh, you know, you can look all of this up. Uh, but I just want to walk you through that there are, uh, you know, some of the physical kinds of side of this. There, there are certain parts in the brain that, that get involved in our fear response, our reaction to fear. Uh, the thalamus decides where to send incoming data, sensory data, uh, that comes into your body. The sensory cortex interprets that data, makes sense out of it, and decides what to do with it. The hippocampus, which I think sounds like a university for hippopotamuses, but you know, I mean, but the hippocampus stores and retrieves conscious memories uh, and it processes that stimuli to establish the context, how to interpret it. The amygdala decodes those emotions, uh, determines the possibility, the threat, what it is, and it also stores fear memories. And the hypothalamus activates the, the fight or flight response. It sends out the signals uh, to all the different kinds of parts of your bodies for certain chemicals and hormones to be released. Now, now all of that sounds like a, a kind of a, a simple kind of process, but it's really fairly complex. You can see there's two rows this can go for. So you, you see a stimulus out there, which might be a threat. And, and, and so let's say it's, a, uh, it's, it's not a huge you know, spider. It's a fairly small spider. So you, know, you see that, and, and your brain realizes that. It goes to the sensory cortex to process that image you're seeing. And then it goes to the hippocampus. And because it's not a really big spider, then maybe you decide how have a little more uh, uh, reasonable response to it. Uh, that gets sent to the amygdala, which then goes to the hypothalamus. Now, if it's a really big, hairy spider, uh, you might just immediately go straight to the amygdala. Uh, uh, yes, right? <laughs> I'm getting some... No. And, and, and then to the hypothalamus, so your response is, is, is uh, you know, more short-circuited. It's more of a reaction. Uh, and, and this makes it look like this is kind of a, a long process or a linear process. And really, the truth is, all of these parts of your brain are in, in communication with each other. So this is going both ways. It's happening very rapidly. Uh, in fact, it can be so rapid that, that you're not even aware of what's going on. Now, a number of years ago when uh, we were still living in Denver, we went some, with some friends of ours out to Aspen, Colorado to see the Aspens as they were turning, which is a magnificent sight uh, if you ever have a chance to see it. And our friend had just bought a new four-wheel drive Toyota pickup truck. So uh, we met them, uh, he and his wife in Aspen, uh, on a Friday evening and had dinner. And then Saturday morning, we got up and, and we took off for the mountains. Uh, we went up and, and had lunch at the Maroon Bells, if you've ever been in that area. And then we took a fire road uh, that went up the backside of Aspen Mountain and then came down the face of that into the community. Uh, our friend and his wife were in the cab and Cindy and I were sitting in the, in the bed of the truck right behind that. And, and as we came over the top of Aspen Mountain and we began to descend, uh, the road had some uh, pretty major switchbacks because it was a very steep uh, section of the mountain. We were above tree line, which means it was all rock and scree, broken up pieces of loose rock. And, and you know, we're driving this switchback. And, and as we come up to a turn where we're going to go to the left and, and come around the switchback, there was a large boulder uh, right there on the edge of the road. And as we approached that, the front left wheel of the truck 
went off that boulder and the truck tilted, lifting the right rear wheel up in the air. Now, our friend in the cab leans out the cab to me and he says, y'all go stand in the back corner of the, of the bed of the truck so we can get our wheel back on the ground there so we don't lose traction going around this. So I turned around to tell my wife, go, we're going to go over here and she's not there. I'm looking, she's not in the truck and I'm, I'm looking around and, and about 10 yards upslope from the truck, my wife is standing up there. And, and I asked her later on, I said, what, what, when did you get out of the truck? And she says, I, I don't even remember it. I don't have any, I, I don't remember. I was in the truck and the next thing I knew it started to tilt and I thought it was going to go down the side of the mountain. And the next thing I knew I'm standing outside the truck. I mean, it was that fast. She responded that quickly to that, which also doesn't, you know, I mean, now I know what happens if we're in trouble. Uh, but anyway, um, you know, she didn't wait on me, but, uh, but, but, you know, it was so fast. And sometimes that's the way this happens. The, the response is so quick that, that you don't even realize you're doing this. Now, God built this into us. This is how we're made to operate. Uh, and there's a reason for that. Because, you know, sometimes it really is a big hairy spider, or sometimes the truck really is going to roll down the side of the mountain, and, and you really do need to make that kind of a rapid response. But other times, we allow our fear to take control of us when we should not. And, and in the worst case scenario, we allow our fear to convince us that God is not with us. So let's pray before we get into the rest of this, talking about facing this with faith. Almighty God, we thank you that you are with us this morning and that you are with us in all the times of our lives when we are frightened. Uh, may the words of my mouth, may the meditation of all of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, for you are our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Now, when this response processes, your body does certain things in response to that uh, to prepare you to deal with whatever this threat is. Uh, your heart rate and your blood pressure increase your pupils dilate to take in as much light as possible. Uh, the veins in your skin contract so that more blood can go to the major muscle groups. And that's why sometimes you feel cold uh, when you're deeply frightened. Uh, your blood glucose level increases. Uh, and the muscles tense up uh, and get energized by the adrenaline in your system and the glucose. And that tensing up of muscles is why you sometimes get what we call goosebumps. Uh, the small muscles in your skin around the base of the hairs tighten up as well. Uh, the smooth muscle in your body relaxes so that your lungs open up and you can get more oxygen into your system. And non-essential systems uh, like digestion and immune system, not essential for the purposes of this threat, that is, uh, shut down to allow more energy for emergency function. And you have trouble focusing on, on small tasks. Your brain is really directed to focus only on the big picture of this threat. Uh, so that you can deal with it, uh, which is why sometimes when we're really frightened, we don't really think that well. Uh, so this is, this is how God built us so that we can respond to, to threats to us that are threats to our well-being. And, and there's a goodness in that because otherwise there are things that could happen to us. I mean, if the truck had rolled that day down the top of, uh, of Aspen Mountain, my wife is the only one of the three of us that would have come out of that unscathed. Uh, so, so there are times when it is an appropriate thing to have this kind of response, and it, it protects us. Uh, but there's other times that it can get in our way. Uh, in uh, 2005, uh, four years after 9-11, uh, Gallup did a poll among teenagers in the U.S. These were the top things that they listed as fears. The, the first was terrorist attacks. Uh, the second was spiders, and, and I really I have to give my, my daughter an apology because my, my, you know, I've given her a hard time about her fear of spiders, and yet here it is. Um, the third is death, the fourth uh, failure, 
Uh, fifth is war. Sixth, fear of heights. Seventh, crime and violence. Eight is being alone. Nine is the future. And ten is nuclear war. And, and you look at that list and you think, oh my gosh. You know, the, these kids ha have a lot on their plate. And they're worrying about the future. They're worrying about nuclear war. I mean, they're, they're living in a place of, of serious, deep fear. Just a few years ago, uh, Church of the Resurrection in Kansas City did a survey of their members, and 2,400 people responded. Of those 2,400, 45% of them reported living with moderate fear, and 35% reported living with significant fear. In other words, 80% of the people that responded said they lived with either moderate or significant fear in their lives. And, and among the fears, when they were asking, you know, what was their major fear, those over 50 years of age talked about the direction of our country, where the country's future is. And those under 50 talked about personal failure and, and disappointing those around them. And I thought, wow, it's really interesting. You know, 80% of them carry these kinds of fears. Um, it's almost as if you know, we, we live in a culture where everybody is afraid. And, and if you think about it, our, our media plays into that because they know that, that stories that, that tell us to be afraid are stories that people read and, and stories that sell. So whether you go on uh, television or whether you go on your computer or on your phone or taking print media, whatever it is, those stories will be selected and written in ways to tell you to be afraid. Now, I'd love to tell you that that's just a phenomenon here, but actually if you travel around the world, what you'll find is in almost every country and every culture, there is some level of this kind of fear that's a reality. It's as if that fear response that God built into us to protect us has gotten out of control, and it's beginning to rule us. And I'd love to tell you that that's a new phenomenon, except if you go in Scripture and you start reading through Scriptures... What you're going to find is that there's roughly 400 references in Scripture where the people were afraid or someone was afraid. And there's 141 references where God says to his people, don't be afraid. So, so that fear response that God has built into us to protect us is not just a problem for us. It's a problem for all his people across all time. Now, I'm going to go into a story in Scripture that kind of illustrates this, uh, and, and I think it's a great story, uh, from, from when the people of Israel approached the Promised Land for the first time. Remember, they've been brought out of Egypt by, by God's power and might, and they've seen all these amazing things. They've come across the sea. They've seen Pharaoh's army destroyed. God has sustained them on this trek across the desert, and he brings them up to uh, the River Jordan at the edge of the Promised Land, and, and the story picks up. God spoke to Moses, send men to scout out the country of Canaan that I am giving to the people of Israel. Now notice, I am giving this land to the people of Israel. Send one man from each ancestral tribe, each one a tried and true leader in the tribe. So these are not just uh, you know, picked randomly. These, these are trusted people that they know and have confidence in. When Moses sent them off to scout out Canaan, he said, Go up through the Negev and then into the hill country. Look the land over. See what it's like. Assess the people. Are they strong or weak? Are there few or many? Observe the land. Is it pleasant or harsh? Describe the towns where they live. Are they open camps or fortified with walls? And the soil, is it fertile or barren? Are there forests? And try to bring back a sample of the produce that grows there. This is the season of the first ripe grapes. With that, they were on their way. They scouted out the land from the wilderness of Zen as far as Rahab toward Lebo Hamath. 
The route went through the Negev desert to the town of Hebron. Ahimon, Sheshai, and Talmai, descendants of the giant Anak, lived there. Hebron had been built seven years before Zoan in Egypt. When they arrived at the Eshkol Valley, they cut off a branch with a single cluster of grapes. It took two men to carry it, slung on a pole. They also picked some pomegranates and figs. They named the place Eshkol Valley, Great Cluster Valley, because of the huge cluster of grapes they had cut down there. After 40 days of scouting out the land, they returned home. They presented themselves before Moses and Aaron and the whole congregation of the people of Israel in the wilderness of Paran at Kadesh. They reported to the whole congregation and showed them the fruit of the land. Then they told the story of their trip. We went to the land which you sent us, and oh, it does flow with milk and honey. Just look at this fruit. The only thing is, now don't you hate that? When somebody's giving you a really great story, or they're trying to sell you something, or they're telling you something, and you're getting all excited, and you think, boy, this really sounds great. And they say, well, you know, there's just this one thing, you know, just this one thing, which is always, you know, where everything begins to unravel. The only thing is that the people who live there are fierce. Their cities are huge and well-fortified. Worse yet, we saw descendants of the giant Anak. Amalekites are spread out in the Negev. Hittites, Jebusites, and Amorites hold the hill country. And the Canaanites are established on the Mediterranean Sea and along the Jordan. Caleb interrupted, called for silence before Moses and said, Let's go up and take the land. Now we can do it. But the others said, We can't attack those people. They're way stronger than we are. They spread scary rumors among the people of Israel. They said, we scouted out the land from one end to the other. It's a land that swallows people whole. Everybody we saw was huge. Why, we even saw the Nephilim giants, the Anak giants, come from the Nephilim. Alongside them, we felt like grasshoppers. And they looked down on us as if we were grasshoppers. The whole community was in an uproar, wailing all night long. All the people of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron. The entire community was in on it. Why didn't we die in Egypt or in this wilderness? Why has God brought us to this country to kill us? Our wives and children are about to become plunder. Why don't we just head back to Egypt? And right now, and soon they were all saying it to one another, let's pick a new leader, let's head back to Egypt. Now remember, God's God's brought them through a lot already you know they've seen his might at work they they've seen what he can do and he's brought them to this place and told them i'm going to give you this land and they are responding in fear now hear the other side of the report moses and aaron fell on their faces in front of the entire community gathered in emergency session joshua son of nun and caleb son of jephunneh Members of the scouting party ripped their clothes and addressed the assembled people of Israel. The land we walked through and scouted out is a very good land. Very good indeed. If God is pleased with us, he will lead us into that land. A land that flows, as they say, with milk and honey. And he'll give it to us. Just don't rebel against God. And don't be afraid of those people. Why, we'll have them for lunch. They have no protection and God is on our side. Don't be afraid of them. I want you to hear 
the difference between those two reports that come back, they all agree the place is, is rich. They all agree it's flowing with milk and honey. They all agree it produces lots of you know, fruit, grapes, pomegranates. All the, I mean, that, that is undisputed. But one group sees it as a place where we're going to be destroyed. If we go there, they're going to kill us. And they spread that rumor. The others say, you know, if this is what God wants us to do and God is with us, they're not going to be able to resist us. Very different pictures of the same reality. One group in fear allows fear to rule. And because of that, they infest the whole community with that fear. And the whole community decides we can't go in there. And they'll spend 40 more years wandering the wilderness because of that. It reminds me of that story at the beginning of Genesis when Adam and Eve are in the garden and the serpent is trying to convince them to eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil and the, and the serpent makes that comment, right? Did, did God really tell you that? Are you sure about that? And that's the great temptation of fear. It, it's not about the reality so much. It's the temptation of fear to say, I am going to listen to my fear instead of trusting the God who's with me. And notice that Caleb and Joshua are not saying it's not going to be dangerous. They're not saying it's not going to be hard. They're not saying there's not going to be battles here. What they're saying, though, is if God is with us, who can be against us? God has promised us this. To face our fears with faith, it doesn't mean that we ignore the danger, and it doesn't mean that we act like it's not there, or pretend it's not there, uh, stick our heads in the sand. It means to see that with, with clear-eyed realism. But it also means that we don't allow the voice of fear to convince us that God has abandoned us and that God is no longer with us and that we're doomed. Some of us uh, in our lives, our, our families, we've had to face the reality of certain kinds of things. And one of them is what I call the big C. A lot of you have had that diagnosis in your family, or you've known people, a diagnosis of cancer. And, and people respond to that in different ways. Uh, some people are just almost defeated immediately when they receive that news, and other people are more resolved than ever to fight. Many years ago, when my father was diagnosed with cancer, uh, I was downtown serving First Methodist, and uh, at that time, uh, there was a, a cancer support group that was happening in that church. And one of the women in that group, who was a breast cancer survivor, uh, came to me and she said, well, now, now your father has to make a decision. He has to decide if he is a cancer victim or if he's a child of God who just happens to have cancer. One, allowing the fear to overcome you and the other to walk faithfully with God. Doesn't change the reality of what he was facing, but it very much changes the reality of how we face that and our spiritual life in the midst of it. I thought about her a few years ago when I had a uh, biopsy done for the same type of cancer which eventually took my father's life. And, uh, and we were getting ready to do that and uh, my wife and I and talking about it and praying ahead of time and, and, and I just had a real sense of God's presence with us in the middle of that. Now on the day of the biopsy I will tell you that the big pill of Valium they gave me kept me very calm, uh, much more calm than I think I realized. Uh, my wife can tell you stories about that. But, um, but even before then, uh, there was this sense of, okay, I'm going into this, uh, and this may now become a reality in my life, um, and, and even in the midst of that, God is still with me. And so I had a sense of calmness and a sense of peace 
going into that that I, I really didn't think I would be able to have. I fully expected to be terrified. Uh, and that just is not what happened. Uh, God surrounded me in that time and lifted me up. And God continues to do that. God continues to speak to his people, uh, even in difficult kinds of places. Uh, in the Old Testament, when the people of Israel were in the exile, and they thought that God had forgotten about them, and God had abandoned them, and they were separated from God, God spoke to them through his prophet Isaiah. But you, Israel, my servant Jacob, whom I've chosen, the offspring of Abraham, my friend, you whom I took from the ends of the earth and called from its farthest corners, saying to you, you are my servant. I have chosen you and not cast you off. Do not fear, for I am with you. Do not be afraid, for I am your God. I will strengthen you. I will help you. I will uphold you with my victorious right hand. Even in that place, I haven't forgotten about you. I'm with you. Don't be afraid. And David, who, who went through that period of time when King Saul was trying to take his life, uh, penned these words in the Psalms. My enemies trample on me all day long, for many fight against me. O Most High, when I am afraid, I put my trust in you. In God, whose word I praise, in God I trust. I am not afraid. What can flesh do to me? And Jesus gave these words even to his disciples uh, as they were moving into that last part of his earthly ministry. The hour is coming. Indeed, it has come when you will be scattered, each to his own home, and you will leave me alone. Yet I am not alone because the Father is with me. I've said this to you so that in me you may have peace. In the world you face persecution. But take courage, I've conquered the world. I mean, to face our fears with faith is, is not to deny the reality of the dangers we face, but it's to hold to the reality of God even in the midst and in the face of those dangers. Frederick Beekner, Beekner once made a comment, and he said, the worst thing is never the last thing. He said, because God is always the last thing. And if you're at that point where you're feeling the worst thing in your life, don't worry, that's not going to be the last thing. God is always the last thing. We hold on to that, and it gives us hope, and it gives us confidence. Uh, a number of years ago when I made my first trip into uh, Africa, and it was a trip to South Africa, and as we prepared to leave, uh, the plane I was on had a mechanical failure, and we were taken back to the gate. Now, I'm, I'm not a real nervous flyer, but you know when you're on a plane and, and you're getting ready to take off, and all of a sudden they say, oops, something broke, uh, it doesn't exactly instill a lot of confidence in you. And so we came back to the gate, and I found out now that my whole flight schedule was ruined all the way, and we were having to rebook everything. And instead of taking 20 hours to get there, it was going to take 36 hours to get there. Uh, the people who were going to pick me up at the airport weren't going to be there. The folks I was supposed to meet up with at the next airport were not going to be with me on this trip. And, uh, and so I, we finally got it booked, and I, I called my wife, and I said, I'm, I'm going. I don't know whether all this will work out or not. Uh, but, but I'm going on and going, and um, so, uh, you know, here we go. Uh, you're not going to hear from me for 36 hours. Uh, so we had this long uh, flights and delays and problems. Uh, it, was, it was the trip uh, where everything that could go wrong would go wrong, and I finally arrived at my destination. Uh, my luggage got there the next day, uh, but I finally arrived at my, my destination, and to my amazement, someone from my hotel was there waiting for me. I, I'm not sure how that got set up. 
but throughout that trip, I just had a sense of, I'm doing this, God, this is, you, you called me to do this, so I'm going to trust you to work it out. Uh, and God did. Uh, which just reminded me, you know, whether you're facing something as serious as cancer or something like this pandemic, or whether it's, it's something more routine, like a flight schedule that's all filed up, uh, God is still with us. God is still with us. Uh, and, and the worst thing's not going to be the last thing. God's going to be the last thing. So God speaks these words to his people uh, in Isaiah. And I love this version from the message. But now God's message, the God who made you in the first place, Jacob, the one who got you started, Israel, don't be afraid. I've redeemed you. I've called your name. You're mine. When you're in over your head, I'll be there with you. When you're in rough waters, you will not go down. When you're between a rock and a hard place, it won't be a dead end. Because I am God, your personal God, the Holy of Israel, your Savior. I paid a huge price for you, all of Egypt with rich Cush and Seba thrown in. That's how much you mean to me. That's how much I love you. I'd sell off the whole world to get you back, trade the creation just for you. So facing our fears in faith is not a denial of the reality of them. Uh, It's not Pollyanna kind of thinking. It's a realistic understanding of the threat that exists. And understanding that sometimes fear plays a very important role in our lives to protect us. But to face that fear in faith is to walk into that in the knowledge that God is with us. And God has not forgotten us or abandoned us. That in fact, God's love is so great for us that he would trade all of creation for us. And we can live and deal with our fear from that place of confidence of God's love for us. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you made us uh, so amazingly well that you built this protection mechanism into us, and yet at the same time we confess that sometimes we allow that fear to overcome us and become a place where temptation can be spoken into our lives, uh, a temptation to deny you and sink into despair. And so we ask, especially in this season of pandemic, that you come close to us, you remind us that we are yours and you have claimed us that we are precious, and that you would trade all creation just for us. We give you thanks in Jesus' name. Amen.